This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, aviation colleges get back to the business of flight training. And pilots have a new connectivity in briefings. Also, Jam Session Ligato, you've heard of them, they are back. And we're going to talk about the first flight of the Sky Courier. Finally, Garmin certifies the Autoland first on a Piper. Are you ready to do some Hangar Talk today, Ian? Well, let's do some Hangar Talk, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, the 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, contact. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, you know, we mentioned in the in the intro there that Garmin certified the Autoland, Piper actually certified the Autoland on the M600. And back when it was announced, we met up with Bailey Scheel. She's the program manager at Garmin, so the one hands-on who helped develop this. And it's really fascinating what this thing can do, and she runs us through some of that. Ian, you caught up with her, and I'm really happy that you did. So it's so timely. I can't wait to hear a little bit more about it. Okay, so that's coming up later. But first, the story that actually you worked on for online. And this is that, you know, we're in extraordinary times with COVID and everything else. And, and colleges, which normally are in competition for flight students, we don't think about that, but they do. They, they compete for students. They have come together now to share some best practices to help actually keep their operations safe as they come back to, to work. That was a fascinating part of this story, Ian. The fact that the, the folks at Embry-Riddle, North Dakota, California, Aeronautical University, the Ohio State, and all the all the biggies. There were about 80 altogether, Ian. And they all got together. They started uh, writing emails to each other. And the email train got so extensive that the Embry-Riddle folks decided to get together and make a webinar and share all the information between the schools. And they're talking about best practices, how to get back to flight training in these extraordinary times, as you mentioned. And I just thought it was fascinating. It's really interesting that the, the togetherness is a, a good thing. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, and folks picked up on it. In fact, at, at uh, AOPA, we might do one of the things that, uh, that Henry Riddle uh, started to do, which is they posted some hold short lines on uh, the floors at common areas that looks just like a hold short line on a, on a taxiway before a runway. Yeah, I love that because that's dual purpose, right? So, like, not only are you hoping to, you know, help people keep their distance, but it's like you're also quizzing students 
because if they cross, then you're like, oh, yeah, you, you exactly. haven't studied this week, have you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Ken Burns was really helpful with that. I wanted to, to give a shout out to him at Embry-Riddle. He was great. And uh, they did talk about that. And also, you know, Embry-Riddle is going to investigate what they're calling face mask fatigue. And this is something that we'll all have to look forward in the future, which is, you know, the longer you wear a face mask, does it affect you in any other way? I mean, does it provide any kind of mental stress and or anything like that? Because in a cockpit, you know, that is a safety item in, in this COVID time. Mm-hmm. So that was interesting, I thought. Also, I caught up with uh, California Aeronautical University President Matthew Johnston, and he is really a good guy. He's really easy to talk to, Ian. And the other thing is that, you know, it's kind of a young school, but in California, they never quit having flight training, unlike other universities, which because of state rules or, or even county rules at Embry-Riddle in Volusia County in Daytona, mm-hmm. they were restricted from flying because of that. But Matt Johnson had some great ideas as well. You know, that's a closed campus, so they can control who comes and goes and can keep the, the arena safe, the flight arena safe. Yeah. But they all are doing a lot more with this disinfecting the cockpits and also common areas like flight simulators and offices and uh, and just sharing this information like I said via this webinar and also a nice PowerPoint that Ken Burns put together it was amazing you know a lot of camaraderie there yeah that's great and I think you know the other thing here that that's I suppose unsaid is that you know, if you're a flight training operator or even a student really right now, you should read the story because there are some ideas I think that any flight school really can implement. And they, you know, just in terms of sanitizing and they talk about, you know, how to know if an airplane's ready to go and all kinds of just little tips and tricks that, that can really help. AOPA is, you know, issued a kind of a back to flying guide and it had some of this stuff in it, some of the things that you want to think about, just some tips and tricks to kind of keep everybody safe and sanitized and clean. But this is just another way, I think, that people are coming together and share some of those ideas. So that, that was, I thought that was great. Cool deal. Well, hopefully folks will, will tap into that because, like you said, it could help us in the local flight training environment as well. These are good, solid tips from folks who know what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of people who know what they're doing, flight service. So, you know, I know, you know, let's just say uh, it's the stats are out there. So we know people are using flight service, at least calling, less. And, and that's a lot because of, you know, apps and other things. But if you haven't been calling flight service or if you haven't been using 1-800-WX-BRIEF.com and, and don't keep up on it, the, what the development that Lighthouse is doing, I think, is just phenomenal. The, the features that they're adding. And you reported on a couple that I think are just super cool and, and things that probably they should have, you know, flight service should have done 30 years ago and are doing now. And that's that basically you're getting some personalization through your briefings. And the latest one is that if you get an update briefing, it strips out all the information that you already know. Yeah, so an update briefing really is an update briefing now, Ian, because uh, basically a technology is there that can ascertain that you've already tapped in for an overall briefing for your first briefing, basically. So the information is not repeated, and that will speed pilots up on their way. But now there's a couple of caveats, Ian. Number one, you got to make sure that 1-800-WXBRIEF.COM has your main phone number. And for that, we mean the phone number you're going to have with you, the one that you're going to call from, the one that's a link to your account. Mm. So make sure you have that one single good solid phone number, you know, posted to your profile. Yeah, that's Otherwise, good. I have a hard time tracking you down. I won't know what you have, what you don't have, things like that. Yeah. 
there's some other boilerplate information. And, you know, I fly in the, the Washington CIFRA. And so starting in May, pilots can opt out of some of these required statements that are part of the briefing. Like I know about the CIFRA. I know yes. that I had to take that course, you know, and you had to certify yourself to fly. So you could opt out of hearing the hearing or seeing presented in a, in a graphic form that information yet again, if you know about it. And some of it could be pages long. Oh, I know. I used to get so it took me listening to somebody else get a briefing to figure out how to kind of get rid of that because yeah as you know it's like living around dc every time you call it's like okay are you familiar with blah 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 and it's like yes i'm familiar and you got to wait for the whole spiel well somebody taught me a trick it's like you get on you're like and i'm familiar with you know you preempt it and so now it's like the system is preempting it for you like you said you save a preference they know that you know they've done the cya thing it's good to go you just get on to business and so just little stuff like that, I think, has been they're just huge improvements. I, I think they're really to be commended. Yeah, and there's one other thing that I uncovered when I was doing all this. First of all, let me remind people. I, now, I moved recently, so if you moved recently, make sure they have your current address uh, also at 1-800-WX-BRIEF because that's really helpful too. But one other cool thing they started about a year ago is this text message service where you can get uh, METARs and TAFs on your smartphone, mm -hmm. and you just have to send a text message to the number 358-782, which is FLTSBC. And that'll give you METARs and TAFs for where you want to go. It's pretty cool. It's a neat little concept, and I think that might help people as well. Cool. Yeah, a lot of the benefits, obviously, you can get from, like, we, like we've been saying, sounds like a commercial at this point, but it's true, 1-800-WXBRIEF.com. And they have an update page, and so you can get into all that on how to use it. And I agree, the text message stuff is great. If you haven't used the flight plan, automated flight plan stuff through email, that's fantastic. So, yeah, lots of stuff to check out. That was a good story. All right. Well, let's move on to uh, to something that's not such a good story, Ian. And we're yeah. talking about more jamming for the Legato Network. But this time they're in trouble with some folks that are heavy hitters. Yeah, yeah. So we mentioned a couple times ago that, they, you know, Legato is this network, that the Internet of Things, you know, as, as they say. The idea is to have, you know, complete connectivity anywhere you go. The problem is, and the reason that this didn't work out the first time that LightSquared tried to do it, is that the band where they want to do their Internet of Things is, is adjacent to GPS. And so DOD and a lot of others are worried about the impact of GPS and, and how it might affect those GPS signals. Now, we said the FCC, in a very strange way, approved this. They did it actually on the weekend, which is unusual for them. And so there was a, a congressional hearing, and Senator Inhofe from Oklahoma, who uh, chairs the Armed Services Committee, Man, he, he came up swinging uh, at, uh, at Legato. He's also a pilot, so he yeah. knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Ian. So, uh, yeah, he was questioning about, you know, number one, like you just said, you know, why why put something like this through over the weekend? This is highly unusual. It's almost like you're trying to pull the wool over someone's eyes. Well, Senator Inhofe is pretty adamant. He wants to know, you know, basically what's going on with this $1.38 million that they spent on lobbying to try to convince Congress that their proposal was a good idea. Yeah. I think that's that might be a key thing right there to talk about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the bad news is the technology, many people are worried and seems to have some, some evidence that it could impact GPS. The good news is, obviously, the military and national security uses GPS, and so we've got some friends on our side here. And so people are coming out hitting, like we said, Senator Inhofe, lots of Congress are, are upset by this. And so I think there's a lot more to come on it. it th these are kind of beginning stages, but definitely something to be aware of. 
Uh, we'll keep an eye on Legados and uh, and how that uh, shakes out really in the long run. And not only does it affect uh, military and general aviation plus it affects you know automobiles, you know marine traffic, yeah. all kinds of things. That's so true. really, there's a, a global aspect to this that really needs to be explored a little bit more. Yeah, good point. Hey, um, some good news. The Sky Courier, which we've mentioned a few times, this is that uh, turboprop twin-engine load hauler that Cessna's developing. It had its first flight a couple days ago. Yeah, first flight lasted about two hours and 15 minutes. It tested airplane's performance and flight control stability, all those kind of things that you would imagine. It's equipped with two of the Pratt & Whitney PT-6A engines, which are pretty common. This is like a a dual-engine version of the Caravan, really. Yeah. Yeah, and it's designed for the package haulers, so it's kind of interesting how this is like a purpose-built airplane and several hundred orders have already been placed by uh, actually 50 sky Couriers have already been ordered by fedex with 50 more yeah and so it, it is amazing you know I, I don't think people realize a lot of the caravans have been ordered and are owned by fedex and its affiliates you know that, that do these kind of these small regional spots another use for ga airports right I think, you know, getting packages would be much more difficult if it weren't for these caravans and these small networks. A lot of people, it's their first commercial job, right? Flying overnight FedEx stuff. That's right. So, yeah. And so the Sky Courier is meant to really replace some of those caravans and offer a little more capability, a little more safety, obviously, with two engines. It will hold, uh, these apparently are called LD3s, these shipping containers, you know, these sort of rounded top shipping containers. Uh-huh. It'll hold three of those, which is pretty cool. Or it can, it's actually, it's a pretty big airplane. It'll hold up to 19 passengers if they want to have passenger configurations. That's really helpful in, in some of the regional areas. And as you mentioned, I, I specifically remember flying into Manio Airport down in North Carolina and seeing one of the uh, FedEx caravans there on the ramp. And you see these at a lot of general aviation airports, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So the price of the Sky courier we finally have a price on it now yeah it's expected to be priced at at 5.5 million dollars and expected to enter service later in 2020 which is the year we're in now yeah that surprised me that they think they're going to make the end of 2020 i i would i would make a bet that's not going to happen you know there's just uh, to have just your first flight now i mean who knows you know they they know a heck of a lot more about certifying airplanes than i do but um that seems ambitious, especially, you know, with various places being shut down and working from home and everything else. The price, though, I, I got to say, it obviously, it sounds high, right? Five and a half million bucks. It sounds bucks. high for you and I, but I bet it's reasonable for what it's doing. I actually, you know, you start to think about it. It's like, you know, when you compare it to things like King Airs and, uh-huh. and other things with, you know, two turboprop engines, it's like, it's a really, I, I think, pretty reasonable price. I wonder if that is in the cargo configuration with like, you know, basic paint, you got the whole interior stripped out you know, just some rails and in a cockpit, you know, and that if you're going to do like a passenger configuration, it's going to cost a, a lot more than that. But I, I do think for like a FedEx and stuff like that, that that's a, that's a pretty good price. That's a good price point. I, I think we'll see a little bit more. Uh, well, we'll hear a little bit more about that particular airplane as they do some more testing. But I think that's great news for Textron and for Cessna and the Sky Courier. Pretty, it's pretty exciting. They brought it to market pretty quick. Yeah. And one more thing it's exciting for is new pilots. You know, people who are coming up through the ranks who, yeah. uh, you know, you can fly Sky Courier instead of a caravan on those overnight runs. So that, that'll be good. So last thing that we want to talk about, and we tease this a little bit, the Garmin Autoland. Now, this is this phenomenal system that that you may have heard about that basically in in the event of a pilot incapacitation, the system will do a number of things, but what it basically comes down to is it will land the airplane automatically. It'll pick the airport, land it automatically. And so the M600, Piper's M600, has become the first airplane in the world certified with this. 
and that news is uh, is fresh news as of today, as when we record the mm-hmm. the uh, hang, hangar talk. And by the way, this is hangar talk number ninety seven. We're closing in on one hundred. The Piper uh, brands it the Halo system, which is yeah. kind of interesting. Their little twist on it. But Tom Haynes flew this system, and he was very impressed with. It. There's a, a new article that we have posted at AOPA.org today, where Tom talks a little bit more about it. We demoed that about a year ago, and uh, it was a very impressive system. I think that this might trickle down in yes. to folks in the in the lower GA world, like like I consider myself to be. <laughs> and and uh, at one point, this might this technology might help us all out, you know, at a, at a smaller price point. Yeah. So we should say, you know, in addition to the M six hundred that was working through the test program, the Vision Jet, the SF fifty. Oh, that's right. They're Absolutely. also working on it. And and one thing that we didn't talk about in the show, but was announced a couple of weeks ago is that the, it's going to be on the TBM, the new TBMs. They have also added it. So I think, you know, this is going to be a phenomenal system. It's going to be standard on most of these sort of owner-flown turbine airplanes. And yeah, like you said, trickle down. One other thing I was going to throw out at you, Ian, and uh, before we leave the subject is that, you know, when I talked to Piper a couple of weeks ago about about some personal protective equipment they were making, I talked to Jackie Carlin in marketing, and she said they were on track to get this certified this month, and I'll be doggone. Uh, you, and, you and I both were worried about that, and they did it. I'm yeah. impressed. Yeah, it is impressive. Congrats to them because that that's a big deal, a very big deal. So, hey, let, let's learn more about it. Bring on Bailey. She's a phenomenal engineer. Like we said, works at Garmin Program Manager on this auto land, and so she kind of runs us through some of the basic features and talks about why they developed it and how they developed it. So Bailey, thanks so much for joining us. This is a really, really cool announcement. Tell me a little bit about Autoland and, and what it is and what it does. Autoland is something that we're all very excited to be able to talk about finally. But uh, Autoland is a system that in case a pilot is unable to land the airplane for whatever reason, the system can land for you. So it's really awesome. It can route around weather and terrain and pick the best airport based on a variety of factors and get that airplane to the ground safely. Tell me a little bit about your experience at Garmin and other stuff you've worked on and, and how you came to work on the project. So I came to work on the project. So let's see. I started at Garmin over five years ago. I came straight out of school and I started off on some of our smaller OEM projects. So some of the smaller aircraft manufacturers working directly with them to help get Garmin avionics installed in their aircraft. And it, it's been a lot of fun working through different uh, technical challenges because uh, obviously Garmin has an idea of what we want to have out in the field and some of our OEM partners have really awesome ideas that they you know, work with us to uh, help get out there. And it was really, really cool seeing multiple times uh, we talked about doing Autoland and we finally got to a point where we we're like, okay, I think it's time that we start getting a, an aircraft lined up to do the certification portion of it and get it developed and moving. And Piper just was like, we're in, let's go. What do you guys need from us? And they just jumped on it. It was really cool to see. So it was I was around from the beginning with, uh, for the Piper Autoland program, and we worked together really closely to come up with brake solutions and how the autofoddle was going to work and a variety of different things. It's been honestly really, really fun working through this, and we get to work with some really passionate and uh, awesome people, so it's been very rewarding. Yeah, that is. That's very cool. 
Great. I became a pilot when I was 17, actually. So I learned to fly. I'm from Oregon and I learned how to fly from the Evergreen Aviation Museum. They sponsored some of my flight training. So that was pretty awesome. I really appreciated that. <laughs> but I grew up in a, a piloting household. My grandfather's a pilot and I grew up flying in and out of um, backcountry Idaho and uh, Oregon and things and his 180 and obviously some influences there from his flying and my thoughts as a child and as my family has pointed out, if something was to happen to him, like what would happen to the rest of us that are in the plane with him. So that was a big influence on the project as well. Hmm. And and how did you decide to go into engineering? I wanted to be an engineer after, well, I wanted to be a pilot for quite a while and I wanted to be a commercial pilot, but I wasn't very good at sitting still. And I figured if I was in an airplane every day, I wouldn't have the most uh, chance to uh, move around. So I thought it would be fun to be an engineer uh, and I loved math and science and that sort of thing. So I uh, went to school for mechanical engineering uh, with an aerospace emphasis and learned how to design rockets, which is not what I do now, but oh wow, yeah, it's a fun little anecdote for my life is learning about rockets and that sort of thing. And then I was looking for an internship to join the workforce as part of my last year of college. I saw Garmin's name and I honestly, I didn't know much about Garmin. I only knew that my grandfather had a Garmin that he swore by in his 180. And he claimed that they were the best company to work with and that if I had ever had a chance to work with them, I should. And that had been 10 years before I applied for my internship. So apparently it stuck with me and I've been here ever since. Oh, fantastic. That's awesome. So, I mean, I think pilots are probably aware or know about maybe like Cat 3 on big airliners and, and those sorts of Autoland systems, but th- this is a little bit different, I gather. Right, yeah. A big Cat 3 system on an airliner, it has the pilot in the loop, and they, you know, the pilot selects where they're going to land, and there's only a select number of airports that you can land at. With this emergency system, we have to be able to do the entire system, entire process without the pilot in the loop. So we have to choose where we're going, make sure we have enough fuel to get there, check through all of the different weather and um, obstacles and all of that, and then execute all of it without having a pilot helping out too much. So the system can be, I guess, engaged automatically or manually. Is that right? That's correct. So yeah, we can do a manual engagement. So there's a button in each of the aircraft. It's in a different spot a little bit, but in the M600, it's up on the panel right above the right display. And in the SA50, it's up on the, on the ceiling It can be pressed by the passenger or the pilot, depending on uh, what needs to happen. And if it needs to be automatically engaged, the system can detect a couple different ways. One of them is through electronic stability protection. So that is our ESP function. So if the airplane is out of roll or pitch limits, you know, the airplane's kind of in an unusual attitude, then the system can engage and go into level mode and turn on the autopilot. And then if the pilot still doesn't uh, recover, then we can go ahead and land the airplane to get him down safely. The other way that is pretty common for these aircraft is the emergency descent mode. Uh, so if the emergency descent mode is activated, so if there's a hypoxic pilot who hasn't interacted with the system for a while, or if the cabin pressurization is lost for whatever reason and the system detects that, we can engage automatically and get the airplane down, figuring that the pilot will not be able to interact. So how long does it take, like your first example where ESP comes in, you know, the autopilot's set on kind of a level mode. How long does the pilot have to interact before the system starts to take over? Through all of this, you can, dis- you can disengage at any time. But for that specific scenario, so for the M600, it's something like 50% of 15 seconds or something if you're in those unusual attitudes and the autopilot will turn on and take you into level mode. So if as a pilot, like that's, if you're hanging out in that, 
uh, scenario with uh, an unusual attitude for that long, it's some, you know, something's kind of going incorrectly or you're doing something on purpose, you know, it's kind of one or the other. It's not a, it's not a gray area at that point. And then once you go from level mode to the auto land for the M600, it's two minutes. So you have two minutes to disconnect uh, and kind of regain your composure and get back to flying. So a lot of these things that I think were are fascinating is, I mean, you guys could have just developed a, a basic auto land system. I mean, basic, maybe not being the right word, but an auto land system that takes care of the airplane and, and gets it down safely. But you did a lot of stuff that purposefully keeps potential non-pilot passengers in the loop. So can you mention some of those and, and why you decided to do that? Yeah. The most important thing with this function is that the passengers are feeling comfortable and they're okay. They need to know that they're okay and trust the airplane and trust the system. So we put a bunch of different things in. We have the displays will go from kind of the pilot mode to a more simplified uh, passenger mode where it shows your airspeed and attitude and altitude like normal, but it now shows speed has the word speed on it instead of just assuming you know what an airspeed tape is. We also have videos and audio that play, letting the passenger know that what the airplane's doing, what it might do, everything's okay, and uh, just reinforcing that the airplane is doing what it's supposed to do, and we're going to get them down. Hmm. One of the important parts of making sure we had a a very passenger-friendly interface was we have our flight sim lab here at Garmin that we loaded up with Autoland software, and unbeknownst to them, we had our human resources team uh, volunteered to take part in a study and they didn't really know what they're signing up for. And we had the pilot simulate uh, incapacitation event during a normal flight. And so during his pre-flight, he would, uh, you know, like, here's the door, here's how you use your seatbelts. There's where the fire extinguisher is. That's the emergency auto land button. You know, this is how you talk to, you know, just the normal, normal pre-flight briefing. And then during the flight, he would slump over, what have you. And it, it was really interesting because that was really awesome feedback from them. Even though it was just in a simulation, they still were very emotionally attached to the, the pilot and wanting to make sure he was okay. So it was it was really interesting feedback from that. And from that, we actually made quite a few changes to the interfaces to make sure that the passenger knows that uh, the system is performing correctly and there's no action required. They also helped us fine tune a couple of our audio messages to them and uh, what words you know would trigger them to be a little bit more stressed, that sort of thing. So that was really, really helpful. And I think that's one of the strengths that Garmin has brought to this is we have a team that knows aviation, but we also have segments that aren't aviation that we were able to leverage with. We talked to some of our consumer team to talk uh, about how to, you know, talk to a non-pilot passenger and get their feedback on things. We worked with meteorologists from within the company. It was really a, a team effort to get all of this to where it is today. Cool. Very cool. So this has been in development for, what, six years now, I guess. Is that right? Actually, a little bit longer than that. We started our first studies with it in 2011, and then we had our first flight in 2015, I think. Yep, 2015. Uh, And then 2016, in February of 2016, we had our first full landing to the ground, which was obviously a very important milestone for us. Yeah, yeah. So how did you know, uh, you know, because these things obviously depend on hardware and software that's also sort of being developed concurrently. So how did you, I mean, obviously, you can have the concept for an auto land system, but at what point do you say, okay, we know we need these pieces to be able to make this work. And these pieces are either something that you've already developed or that you know, you need to develop. I mean, there must be some sort of parallel process there. Right. I think we've always had the idea for Autoland. We've always wanted to do something like this, uh, even since we started our autopilot program. And it's it's not been a single, like, we need this one piece, aha, we're done. It's more of a, 
building blocks process. So we've had like our autopilot works really well. Our flight plan, you know, everyone knows how to use a flight plan in our system. We already have weather in the system. So it's just kind of putting those blocks together in a new novel way and then making sure that we are thinking through the passenger element. I think the passenger was the probably the most complicated portion just to make sure that we're thinking through not what any of us would like to see, but what a spouse or friend or, you know, loved one would need to see in that situation. So what, I mean, as it stands right now, what is required in terms of hardware, software for the airplane to to be able to use this system? And, And what do you see as maybe being able to sort of bring it down scale in the future? Yeah. So we, uh, right now we need a G3000 integrated flight deck. That's our launch platform. Then we have brake systems. So we can kind of going backwards here. Uh, you can stop the airplane on the runway. We have a wheel speed system on the M600 to detect when the airplane has touched the ground and to help with anti-skid since we actually have an anti-skid differential brake on the M600 now for that emergency scenario. We use a radar altimeter to do better sensing of the flare and touchdown during that regime. And then we have the autopilot and auto throttle, both on the M600 for this function. Uh, the SF-50 has very similar uh, similar hardware. Just every aircraft will have slightly different implementations of it. And yeah, it, it, the Piper is the one I, I started with. So they're kind of the one I always go to as my, my default example. Yeah. So do you see it being able to to be sort of down marketed in the future and come into things like, you know, even way into the future, maybe something like a 172? Yeah, I think that we can, I think you can hear anyone at Garmin say, we want this on every airplane. We think it's a, an added safety benefit. You know, there's obviously ways that we can get this into smaller airplanes that maybe are a little easier. So if you think about a 172 compared to an M600, the 172, if you just have the engine at idle, you're not going to need to break much since you can have a long enough runway just to roll out and uh, come to a stop naturally. Whereas on the M600 to have um, good runway performance, we want to have a, a nice firm break. Sure. So you mentioned the the passenger aspect being kind of difficult. I'm also curious, uh, this is maybe not necessarily, I'm sure it's something that you worked on, but not necessarily where, you know, where they rely on you for your expertise, but from a liability standpoint, I mean, this must've been a constant question and I suppose it is in a lot of stuff that you guys do, but especially because you're, you know, the software now is selecting airports, the software is, you know, from a technical standpoint, I'm sure you you feel very comfortable, but it's like even something as basic as, you know, picking one airport or over another when one might have emergency services closer than the other. So what were those conversations like? So a lot of our certification, we've worked very closely with the FAA for, obviously, they're the ones that are defining the requirements. And we're obviously trying to help as much as we can with that. But a lot of it is that it's post-catastrophic. If the pilot is lost for whatever reason, then all we can do is help. We're not doing anything that is going to harm. You know, we can do everything we do is just value add. So if we pick an airport that maybe isn't as perfect as a different airport, we're still getting the airplane to the ground. So it's kind of a, a value added scenario instead of maybe a catastrophic scenario at that point at that point. Makes sense. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So what about the technical challenges? I mean, when, when you kind of look over the project, I mean, is this, is this a major technological hurdle? I mean, do you feel like you had to solve lots of really integrate problems or is it like, Hey, the, the technology was already there. We just kind of put the pieces together. For the majority. Yeah. We put the pieces together that were already there. There are a few things that we had to do, like our weather routing. We had to learn how to forecast weather based off of a variety of inputs from weather. So we use connect and 
NEXRAD and all sorts of different weather sources and we layer them together and then we've learned how to forecast after talking with some of our meteorologists that are, work for Garmin. And then just some little things like if you don't have a pilot, how do you determine what the correct barrow sink and barrow settings are? So we had to go through and, you know, do an algorithm, a new algorithm to determine the best way of choosing a, a barrow setting for the airplane, which our pilot was telling us he's only seen it like 0.01 inches of mercury off. So we're pretty proud of it. It ended up working pretty well. But just little things like that where we have to kind of just plug the hole that the pilot would normally normally be in and just make sure that the, the airplane's doing what it's supposed to do. So uh, about certification, you know, you said you, you faced a, a few hurdles and you kind of, you know, took the guidance of the FAA saying, hey, this is kind of an emergency system. But it, especially like in this, you know, this sort of post-737 world where automation has been called into question, did that make your process, especially here at the end, a little bit more difficult? Not not really. I think the FAA is being very diligent in making sure that we're meeting all the correct safety milestones and safety reviews that we need to have. But with, you know, things like the uh, the recent accidents, a lot of those have been, you know, the pilot didn't quite know what was going on. Uh, maybe something wasn't enunciated as well as it could have been. I don't want to speculate it. I'm not, you know, I'm not the engineer on that that project. But with ours, it's, with Autoland, it is something that is very apparent that it is activated. And there are multiple methods of deactivating. So if the pilot ever didn't want it to be on or it came on for some reason and it shouldn't have, uh, the pilot can just hit the, the AP disconnect, either on the red button on the yoke or the button up on the mode controller. So I think that was one of the things that was really important for us is as we were doing the technical documentation and engineering for it is to make sure that our system uses the same architecture that a pilot would expect. So no new and novel functions, really, just to make sure that the pilot knew exactly how to fly it if he ever did come to while the system was going. And, and the fact that it's meant to be an emergency system and, and, you know, sort of a system of last resort, I mean, I'm curious why go that route instead of kind of part of the main architecture of the, of, of the airplane and of, of the G3000? I mean, why, why not start with something that a pilot can use maybe on every flight? If we do the, the normal use auto land system, you need a lot more redundancy. And it, I think on a wide body 777 or whatever, they need to have like triple redundancy. So they have three autopilots, three radar altimeters, all of that. And on some of these general aviation aircraft, they would just the weight and cost would be too much to make it make sense technically. So going the emergency route covers a very critical use case that things do happen and pilots are incapacitated for a variety of reasons, but also to do something that these general aviation aircraft can actually use and adopt. And one thing I'm struck by with the system is is that unlike a lot of things, I think where it's sort of technology for technology's sake, I mean, this has been really well thought out and it seems to have a, I guess, maybe a deeper understanding of, I think, how pilots operate and how airplanes operate. And so can you just, I mean, tell me a little bit about some of the aviation experience of, of you and, and people on the team and how that played into it. Yeah, Garmin really likes to hire people that are passionate about aviation in our aviation team. We have a whole bunch of software engineers, and many of them have taken ground school or, or starting their private pilot licenses. And uh, I know the majority of the people that have worked on the team, I myself am a pilot, and we like to really live and breathe the airplanes. I think that some of the most useful feedback we've gotten is after the software engineers come up with something and we're working with the systems and making sure that they're all talking together and giving them to the flight ops guys and let the uh, flight test people go take a look at it and tell us what they think. And I think some of the first things that they saw, they weren't as impressed by, but we've, we've come a long way since those early days. And honestly, having pilots that 
fly these airplanes day in, day out. And people that have been around airplanes a lot has been really, really helpful. Yeah, it's great. Very exciting. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the time. Yeah, thanks, Thanks, Ian. Ian. David, I, I just, I'm so excited about this system and, and what the future holds for it. And maybe even down to a Skyhawk one day, like you said, down to us lowly GA types. But you know, I think the most fascinating thing about this is that she said the hardest part was the non-pilot development. It's like, you know, they could have, the technology was there for years to be able to put this on an airplane, but they really thought through every part of it. Because otherwise, you know, when you have your passengers, how are they going to understand exactly what to do? You want it in its simplest terms. You want it to unfold, you know, easily so that someone could just push a button and, and away you go without really having to know much about the aircraft. Yeah, very cool stuff. Hey, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangartalk. We are also on the Apple iTunes and Spotify platforms. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.